Anybody else impressed with that last song, Fitted for Service Above? That caught my attention, too. I don't know if her father and son made any connection to that or not. I don't know, but uh, it, uh, it challenged me. Uh, what is our purpose for being here today? What is our purpose in life? Uh, we have missions and goals and visions of life, but it needs to go beyond that. And uh, you stop and think about what all is required in being fitted for service above. It's First of all, number one is that you have accepted the plan of redemption that is uh, uh, provided on Calvary. That's the number one requirement. And then surrender and surrender and surrender after that. And uh, so I was challenged as we think about uh, fitting ourselves for service above. Thank you, Richard. I'd like to think this morning about part of God's creation that you maybe don't always think about as being inspiring. At least I'll confess I haven't always viewed it as being inspiring. But I'm attaching it to the title of my message and meditation here this morning, Stones of Inspiration. And I, uh, as a boy growing up in northern Lancaster County, uh, the picking up of stones and out of the fields of cultivation was a a regular routine. And uh, we were in the northern part of Lancaster County where in the sandstone part, which uh, seemed like it had an excess abundance of stones, uh, I realized there's probably areas that had worse but uh, in my small mind and my immaturity, we had more than we needed and more than I thought we should have. And we tried to figure out whether they reproduced or, or you know, we did it year after year after year, and it seemed like they got less. And uh, it was probably a part of character cultivation, and uh, God knew I needed that. It, it fell upon us smaller boys to do the task. We had a a tractor and a trailer, two-wheeled trailer that we picked uh, rocks on. And uh, if you understand, I probably told you this story before, but uh, some of the younger ones may not remember it, maybe some of the older ones too. But my younger brother and I, we were responsible for picking rocks off the field, and it was hilly. And uh, we had this two-wheeled trailer, and uh, in our, I was probably 10, 12, 13 perhaps, about, Matthew and Micah, thank you. I know them. <laughs> or Sean and Gareth Sage. But, uh, so I didn't think of all the dynamics that are in play when you load a trailer, a two-wheeled trailer, heavy with rocks, and, uh, you know, the wheel, the axle is about in the center, so, you know, you gotta think about the balancing factor of that and the weight that's on the drawbar of the tractor. And, uh, we probably didn't have it balanced. We had probably more on the front than we had on the back. And uh, so he and I were out there in the field. It was after school, and our responsibility was to get these rocks picked up. And uh, as I remember, we had a pretty full trail load, and he was walking along the edge of the field just throwing some in the woods. And I said, well, we're going to head up across to the next field and go somewhere else to unload. And as the tractor came to the field drive, there was a dead fur there, probably six, eight inches. And the tractor, as it, the front, uh, it was a tricycle-type steering as the 44 Massey Harris, and as it hit the that uh, six, eight inch in elevation, the front end just came right up. And I was on the tractor driving, and uh, 
Fortunately, it, it probably, as I think about it, what happened was it was the trailer hitch was low enough that it kept it from coming back over all the way. But I, I abandoned the tractor. I jumped off. I thought it's coming back over. <laughs> I thought I was beat. I was jumping ship. And as I stood back and watched, the tractor kind of started doing this thing. The one back wheel would jump over, over the curb, and then it would kind of drop down. Then the other back wheel would jump up, and then pop up again. There it sat for, I don't know, what I thought seemed like a long time, just doing this thing back and forth. And uh, I, I remember I tried to yell to my brother. I said, look, I was sure we're going to see this thing go backwards over. And uh, I thought I had probably done the correct thing, which maybe it was at least get out of harm's way. And finally, it actually got both back wheels up over the the uh, field drive there, and then the front end came back down again, and it kept on chugging off out across the field, and I ran after and climbed on again. But, uh, you know, that's a, that's a good lesson, and uh, but that's one of the memories I have of picking up stones, and, uh, you know, my appreciation, that didn't enhance my appreciation for stones any, any the more, but uh, the risk that were involved in that, but... Uh, so I don't know whether you find stones inspiring or not, but uh, this past week we had uh, Matt Nolt, Nolt's custom concrete from Iowa up doing some uh, repair work on our barn. And, uh, you know, now to me I found that inspiring. They they took uh, some of what uh, Kenny's product is, the stones and cement, and, which makes concrete, and they, they formed walls and footers redid the barn walls for us, and it, it looks nice, very nice, and it has improved the strength of it. But again, that's in a, in a way that is, uh, is uh, you know, determined. It's a way that forms. They knew what they were doing. They drilled down and, and drilled uh, with the auger, postal auger, and drilled uh, footers, and, uh, you know, it greatly enhanced the strength and, and uh, structure of the, of the barn. And it inspires me to look at it. Before it was tongue and groove treated boards that were nails were rusting off and the boards were popping off and the posts were uh, decayed pretty badly. And uh, so it, uh, it's something that, uh, as I see it every day as I walk out there, it looks quite a bit better. It was well worth the, the time to do it. But uh, So I was thinking about stones and, and, and rocks. It's one of God's creation that is actually mentioned in the scripture pretty frequently. And I didn't look at Strong's to see how many times it's mentioned. But this morning I want to just look at some of the uh, references to stones and rocks that we have recorded in the scripture. And trust to inspire us uh, and maybe better fit us for service above where there may not be rocks. I'm not anticipating rocks in heaven. Whether there will be, are there, why are there rocks? Talks about gold, streets of gold. Uh, at least rocks that are not where they shouldn't be anyway. First one I want to draw your attention to is found in Exodus chapter 31. Familiar account. Verse 18. And this is where God is giving the Ten Commandments to, to Moses. And, uh, Exodus 31 verse 18. And he gave unto Moses when he had made an end of communing with him upon Mount Sinai, Two tables of testimony, tablets of stone written with the finger of God. Now, I don't know if you've ever thought about that. You know, a stone would not be my first choice of recording something. You know, we have different methods of recording. We either use a keyboard or we use a pen and paper, wood, pencil, pen, whatever, writing instruments. But back here we see God. It says he wrote 
those testimonies, those commandments on tables of stone written with the finger of God. Now, in my thinking, I think, okay, well, that's that would be pretty hard. But, you know, you think of God. I imagine as his finger came down on that stone, it automatically made an indention. That's just my my imagination. You think of God, the power that is within God, who created the heavens and the earth. You know, is it a small thing? You know, if I want to make something of stone, I've got to take a hammer and a chisel and tap it. And uh, till I'd be done trying to relay a message on stone, it would be probably so distorted that the message would not be conveyed. But with God, definitely the message was distinct. And uh, so this was the first encounter. We have God, you know, thinking of, of, of being engraved in stone, something that's lasting, something that's enduring. And we have the truth and the commandments of God preserved yet today. Man has tried to abolish it. Man has tried to do away with it. The Ten Commandments, they've been removing them from public buildings. But yet we still have with us today the Ten Commandments and all of the commandments of God, even as we have them from cover to cover in the book that we know as the Bible. Well, if you know the story, if you go into chapter 32, verse 19, as God was communing with Moses there on the mount and had given him, presented to Moses these tablets of stone with the Ten Commandments that were to govern their relationship to him and to each other. The children of Israel were down and uh, had uh, lost their focus, lost their heart and confidence in God and Moses. And in chapter 32, verse 19, And it came to pass, as soon as he came nigh, this is Moses, as soon as he came nigh unto the camp, that he saw the camp and the dancing, dancing, and Moses' anger waxed hot, and he cast the tables out of his hands and break them beneath the mound. I don't know how God felt about that. I, and I'm not sure. Moses did seem to have somewhat of an anger problem. There's different times that he, he seems like he lost it, you know, in the killing of the Egyptian and uh, in other incidences in relating to the children of Israel. And I'm not going to fault him because, you know, humanly speaking, it seems like he was pushed to the max many times. But we see here him being so uh, overcome with the lack of of the, the children of Israel's uh, commitment and uh, their foolishness that he, in des- desperation, broke those stones and, talent, and uh, tablets of stone that God had written. And uh, if we read on further, if you go to chapter 34... There's a lot happened between these accounts here, but we see Moses then is assigned in chapter 34, verses 27 through 28. Moses is actually assigned the responsibility to rewrite those tables of stone himself. And uh, I don't know what it took him. He was up there 40 days, so I don't know how exactly how long it took him, but it probably at least took him that long. And verse 27, the Lord said unto Moses, write thou these words for After the tenor of these words, I have made a covenant with thee and with Israel. And he was there with the Lord forty days, forty nights, and he did neither eat bread nor drink water. And he wrote upon the tables the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. So there Moses was assigned the responsibility of of writing down again what God had given to him. And uh, I can, I don't know what Moses' thoughts, what thoughts went through Moses' mind as he was up there those forty days. But he had a lot of time to think about as he wrote those, and exactly how he did it, I'm not certain. But I know it was probably, the message was probably engraved in his heart 
The Bible talks about that. We have the law of God engraved in our hearts. It was probably in Moses' heart till he had it done on stones. And uh, I guess I think of the punishment in school that many teachers use. I don't know. Do you use this, Jesse? Maybe I shouldn't ask you. You gotta write whatever you, whatever, uh, violation you were caught with, you had to write X number of times <laughs> that you will not do this. You will not do this. And, uh, you know, it kind of gets the message across about partway through, uh, at least if hopefully, if not for sure by the end. And uh, unfortunately, I've, I've probably had, I, I can't distinctly remember, but I know I've done that. Uh, I'm sure I've done that if my teachers were here to attest to that. Yeah, you probably did. I wasn't a perfect student, and I don't need to tell you that. But So Moses was uh, assigned the responsibility to write, rewrite own tables of stone, those commandments. And uh, stone, I believe, is symbolizing God's presence, God's provision, and God's enduring uh, law today for us yet today. And I think that's that's a thought that uh, even in spite of man's effort to abolish God's law, Yet we still have it, and God's word will, I believe, be with us forever, as long as we have have time on our hands. The second example is in Exodus chapter 17, and this is going back. This was actually in the wilderness journey, and then you might have thought I'd probably bring this one up. In Exodus chapter 17, where we find um, verses 1 through 7, this was just shortly after the children of Israel had left the land of Egypt, Egypt, a type of the world, as we look at the typology in, in God working with his people in the past, Egypt, a type of the world, and God was delivering them. And in, in uh, Exodus 17, verses 1 through 7, And all the congregation of the children of Israel journeyed from the wilderness of sin after their journeys according to the commandment of the Lord and pitched in Rehidim, and there was no water for the people to drink. Wherefore the people did chide with Moses and said, Give us water that we may drink. And Moses said unto him, Why chide ye with me? Wherefore do ye tempt the Lord? And the people thirsted there for water, and the people murmured against Moses and said, Wherefore is this that thou hast brought us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our cattle with thirst? And Moses cried unto the Lord, saying, What shall I do unto this people? They be almost ready to stone me. Catch that. And the Lord said unto Moses, Go on before the people, and take with thee of the elders of Israel, and thy rod, wherewith thou smotest the river, take in thine hand, and go. Behold, I will stand before thee there upon the rock in Horeb, and thou shalt smite the rock, and there shall come water out of it, that the people may drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. And I'll stop reading there, but there we find the children of Israel who... Um, Moses was leading from the land of Egypt, and uh, the uh, I should have read verse seven there too. It mentions uh, Messiah and Meribeth is what uh, he called the name of that place, and that actually those two names signify uh, temptation and strife. And in verse seven there, and uh, the question that uh, Moses challenged the people with is they looked at their natural need, thirst. You know, we get thirsty. We know about it. At least we think we get thirsty. And I think the children of Israel thought they got thirsty and their cattle. And uh, I, I don't know for sure how desperate it was. But it was desperate enough that they were ready to take things in their own hand and serious enough that Moses 
cried out to the Lord. Now Moses went to the to the correct source with his problem, and that's a challenge, I think, to us. As we encounter problems in life, we need to go to the Lord. We need to go to the rock, uh, the rock of Horeb, as it's described here. And uh, that rock, actually, that name means, uh, is the Lord among us? And uh, that's a challenge as we think uh, of our congregation, as we think of our personal lives. Is the Lord among us? Are we seeking the living water from the rock of Christ Jesus? Do we drink from it daily? Does it satisfy our spiritual thirst? It is interesting to uh, read on their father in uh, in that account. Now, you might notice Moses smote the rock as God had told him to there, and, and water came forth. And that rock is a type of Christ being smote, stricken, crucified on Calvary. And uh, we know that later on that... Uh, in the children of Israel's wandering, they came back to, to that rock again. And God had instructed uh, Moses to speak to the rock only. He actually, he said, take your rod and bring the children of Israel to the rock. And then speak to the rock. Very distinct instructions. And Moses did exactly the opposite. Uh, he spoke to the people and struck the rock. God said, take your rod, bring the people and speak to the rock. Moses did exactly the opposite of what God had told him to do. He, he again struck the rock, which broke the type. That, And you might say, well, that's so insignificant that he broke that type. But that would be like crucifying Christ the second time. And we read about that in, New, in the New Testament. Uh, we're challenged as uh, in the Apostle uh, Paul's writings. He says, if we sin, that if we sin again after we have appropriated the redemption and the blood of Christ in our lives, and it's like, crucifying Christ afresh. And uh, we know that cost Moses very, very dearly. He was not allowed to enter the promised land, the Canaan land, because of his violation of the second time in coming to that rock when the children of Israel again thirsted. And Moses then smote that rock when he should not have, when God told him not to smite that rock. <clears throat> Reading own father in Exodus there, uh, we realize that there was a, uh, a battle that took place uh, right shortly after God had provided with them water. If you read down further there in chapter 17, verse 8, Then came Amalek and fought with Israel and Rehidim. And Moses said unto Joshua, Choose us out men and go and fight with Amalek tomorrow. I will stand on the top of the hill with the rod of God in my hand. That rod is again that rod that that God used so strongly in dividing the uh, Red Sea. And uh, this rod was representative of God's presence and God's power. Verse 10, so Joshua did as Moses had said to him and fought with Amalek. And Moses and Aaron and Hur went up to the top of the hill. And it came to pass when Moses held up his hand that Israel prevailed. And when he let down his hands, then Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands were heavy and they took a stone. Now notice that. They took a stone and put it under him. And he sat their own. And Aaron and hers stayed up, his hands, the one on the one side and the other on the other side. And his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. And Joshua discomfited the Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. And the Lord said unto Moses, Write this for a memorial in a book and rehearse it in the ears of Joshua, for I will utterly put out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it Jehovah Nish. For he said, because the Lord has sworn that the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. I thought that was rather interesting that after God provided 
water out of the rock for their sustenance. Then he also provided a rock of, of comfort for Moses to sit on. And, uh, you know, you look at the beginning of the story, Moses says, they're going to stone me. And uh, twice after that, God provided a rock as, as Moses' anchor. And uh, so we may find the Lord among us today, even yet today, and our sustenance from him. The account that I mentioned is in Numbers 20, verse 8, where God directed uh, Moses to only speak to the rock. And again, that has some typology, the fact that uh, we need to come to God as a rock in prayers and supplications. And uh, so Moses was a type of, in the Old Testament here, uh, a type of supplicating to God, to Christ, in behalf of the people for their sustenance type of our prayers and supplications as we know. We were talking about that this morning in our Sunday school lesson, the idea of praying and uh, coming to God in supplication for our, our needs and others' needs as well. The other, uh, another set of stones that I, in the Old Testament here, that I want to, uh, that I find rather fascinating, and I don't, I'll confess, I don't know a lot about it, but uh, we mention it from time to time. In, in Exodus chapter 28 and uh, verse 30, we find the, the garments of the priests, and in their vesture and garment, they had the two stones uh, uh, fastened in, uh, Urim and Thummim. And uh, how they functioned exactly, I'm not exactly sure. The scripture doesn't give us a lot of information about that. But it was a way of determining God's will. And uh, I might just read those... Uh, in uh, Exodus verse 28, verse 30. Um, Thou shalt put in the breastplate of judgment, Urim and Thurman, and they shall be upon Aaron's heart when he goeth in before the Lord. And Aaron shall bear the judgment of the children of Israel upon his heart before the Lord continually. Now, doesn't that sound, doesn't that sound kind of unique and nice that you could determine God's will just simply by having two stones in your vesture. Okay, so you've got a question. Somebody comes to you with a question, perhaps. Or, do we go to battle today? And you go in before the Lord. And I, one commentator, one, I think there was some of the thoughts were taken from Josephus. They said that oftentimes when the question was asked, the priest would look toward the altar, and the person would ask the question, and then the answer was revealed either perhaps by the the lighting of one of the stones. I think Urim was supposed to be yes, and Thaman no. And uh, so there you had your answer. The, the priest wasn't uh, necessarily directed. And I don't know how God worked with those stones. I I really don't have a direct answer. Was it uh, God's divine power uh, shining through those stones, revealing yes or no? And uh, I also read, too, that they said the, the priest that oftentimes went, led the children of Israel in battle was often kept those. He was, he was allowed to wear that vesture into battle with that as a display of confidence to the the soldiers, uh, the children of Israel, as they went and faced battle, it was it was there before them. Okay, God has already promised you the victory, and I find that precious to think that God has done that for us today. He has already given us victory, uh, but again, we need sometimes our confidence is shaken, sometimes our trust is shaken, and we need to be reassured. We need to have a second look at those stones. We need to have a second look at the word of God. Yes, he has provided all that pertain unto life and godliness. God has already given that to us. And if I choose to violate that, 
It's, it's because of my choices, my decisions, my lack of commitment. So that was just two other little stones that, that I have always fascinated me. And I, I, again, I don't know a lot about it. There is an example in, uh, I did find one biblical example in 1 Samuel, uh, chapter 23. Um, 1 Samuel 23, verses 9 through 12. I'm 2 Samuel. 1 Samuel 23, verses 9 through 12. I believe this is in the choosing of, uh, or it involved Saul. Maybe it wasn't the choosing of Saul. Verse 20, 1 Samuel 23, verses 9. Okay, no, this involves David, actually. I was reading different accounts. I wasn't sure which one I had recorded. And David knew that Saul secretly practiced mischief against him. And he said to Apathur, the priest, bring hither the epot, which was where those stones were in, the epot that the priest wore. He said, David requested. David here is fleeing from Saul. Saul is pursuing David, trying to kill him. And uh, David was out in the distant country there, and he's... Uh, the people of Keilah. Then said David, O Lord God of Israel, thy servant hath certainly heard that Saul seeketh to come to Keilah to destroy the city for my sake. So Saul was going to come and destroy this whole city just to get David. And uh, so David makes an appeal to Abathah the priest. Will the men of Keilah deliver me up into his hand? Will Saul come down as thy servant has heard? O Lord God of Israel, I beseech thee, tell thy servant. And the Lord said, he will come down. Then said David, will the men of Keilah deliver me and my men into the hand of Saul? And the Lord said, they will deliver thee up. And David and his men, which were about 600, arose and departed out of Keilah and went whithersoever they could go. And it was told Saul that David had escaped from Keilah and he forbear to go forth. And that's the example that I could find where David used the priest with his epodon to find an answer from the Lord as to where he wanted him to be. And uh, he had already, I think, been anointed king at this time. But yet Saul was not, well, maybe it's a little like our political situation today. I don't know if Trump conceded or not yet, but uh, certainly not to that extent. But uh, David here is, is seeking God's direction in his, uh, his plan for his life. Turning to the book of Joshua for another example. Uh, Joshua chapter 4. These are uh, memorial stones, I call them. Not quite like the memorial stones that uh, we think of in uh, in graveyards, but uh, in uh, Joshua chapter 4, verses 1 through 12. This is the uh, children of Israel now coming to the end of their journey from Egypt ready to pass into Canaan land and ready to cross Jordan. And in, in uh, Joshua 4, verses 1 through 12, And it came to pass, when all the people were clean, passed over Jordan, that the Lord spake unto, unto Joshua, saying, Take you twelve men out of, the, out of the people, out of every tribe a man, and command ye them, saying, Take ye hence out of the midst of Jordan, out of the place where the priest's feet, feet stood firm, twelve stones, and you shall carry them over with you and leave them in the lodging place, where ye shall lodge this night. Then Joshua called the twelve men whom he had prepared of the children of Israel out of every tribe a man, 
And Joshua said unto them, Pass over before the ark of the Lord your God into the midst of Jordan, and take ye up every man of you a stone upon his shoulder, according unto the number of the tribes of the children of Israel, that this may be a sign among you, that when your children ask their fathers in time to come, saying, What mean ye by these stones? Then ye shall answer them, that the waters of Jordan were cut off before the ark of the covenant, Of the Lord, when it passed over Jordan, the waters of Jordan were cut off, and these stones shall be for a memorial unto the children of Israel forever. And the children of Israel did so as Joshua commanded, and took up twelve stones out of the midst of Jordan, as the Lord spake unto Joshua, according to the number of the tribes of the children of Israel, and carried them over with them unto the place where they lodged, and laid them down there. And Joshua set up twelve stones in the midst of Jordan, in the place where the feet of the priests, which bear the Ark of the Covenant, stood, and there, and they are there until this day. For the priests which bear the ark stood in the midst of Jordan until everything was finished that the Lord commanded Joshua, that the Lord commanded Joshua to speak unto the people according to all that Moses commanded Joshua. And the people hastened and passed over. And it came to pass when all the people were clean passed over that the ark of the Lord passed over and the priests in the presence of the people and the children of Reuben and the children of Gad and the half tribe of Manasseh passed over armed before the children of Israel as Moses had spake unto them. So there we find God using stones as a memorial. And uh, we have things that we use as a memorial today. Our communion service, which we just observed, that's that's a memorial-type service. We, we do it in remembrance of his death and suffering. And children can ask why or what. Why do you do this? And uh, we explain that. And uh, these memorial stones that were carried, it looks like there was two... Uh, Memorials maybe one maybe in the middle of the river that Joshua built and then one that the 12 men designated from the tribe carried out along the river. Uh, seems that's what the scripture is saying here. What is the purpose of memorial stones? Well, it's simply again to remember, to be reminded. It's to ask questions of those generations that follow after. It's to establish an event and, uh, an event, a location, a happening. And, uh, So it's challenging as we we think of uh, God using stones for that purpose. The uh, next stone I like to talk about is the uh, idea of uh, the talking stones, and this goes to the New Testament where we see Jesus using Luke chapter 19. The account of uh, Jesus coming into Jerusalem and his uh, triumphal entry here. Luke 19, verses 37 to 40. And when he was come nigh, even now into the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed be the King that cometh in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees from among the multitude said unto him, Master, rebuke thy disciples. And he answered and said unto him, I tell you that if these should hold their peace, the stones would immediately cry out. Why did Jesus use that expression? The stones would cry out. And I'm not sure I have an answer for the fact that God is the creator of heaven and earth. And he will use, he will be glorified by whatever purposes he deems fit. If you and I as the crowning event of his creation will not glorify him, God will be glorified through other avenues. And I guess I thought, as I meditated on that concept, how 
is my praising and witnessing of God's mighty works? Is it loud? Is it, is it seen? Uh, would critics say, hey, just tune it down a bit. You're being too biased. You're being too vocal. Maybe they, they should probably criticize us for that. Because we ought to be vocal. We ought to be outspoken about the mighty works of God. If you stop and think how much more complex you are than a rock. Uh, now, I suppose if you were geologists and you looked at rocks in a geologist's eyes, you'd see rocks are probably pretty complex. There's how many different kinds. There are different composites and different minerals that are made up of the rocks. You know, when I look at a rock, you know, I still tend to look at a rock as, you know, typically unnecessary. We still pick rocks out of our fields. And, uh, but you know, God said, if you think of how complex we are, we ought to be giving praise and glory to God. We have the abilities to think, ration. We have the ability to move and communicate, feel, see, uh, smell, hear and taste. And, and the ability, to, the ability to influence others because of that. Um, we need to praise and rejoice with a loud voice of God's mighty works. And do I recognize God's works today? And I appreciated the testimonies that were shared in the Sunday school class this morning. That, you know, when you can attach something to a lesson, a personal experience, that adds tremendous dimension to it, I think. And numerous of you have shared that this morning. Do I see God working among us? Or is the praise and glory of God in small letters in my life? Or is it in capital stones? The next stone I want to draw your attention to is, uh, how many of you ever heard of um, Mike Lindell? Any of you ever hear of Mike Lindell? A few of you raised, almost raised your hand. David, you want to take a guess at it? You ever hear of him? Linden? I thought it was Lindell, L-I-N-D-E-L-L. Okay. Who were you thinking of? <laughs> well, anyway, Mike Lindell, if that's how you pronounce it, is the founder and CEO of My Pillow Company. And uh, he lives in Minneapolis. And I, I didn't know him. I still don't know him today. I, I did see just little glimpses of him in, in the recent presidential election. And uh, so I, I, as I was thinking about well, it fit with my next stone, and that's where Jacob used a, a stone for a pillow. And uh, anyway... This, uh, my pillow company is supposed to be the pillow company, and, uh, I did do some reviews on it. Some of it seems to be a little bit, uh, over, uh, over, uh, uh, what's the word I want? Over blowing up, over evaluated. Because there was some pretty negative critics about his, uh, his product. But it's, uh, you know, his, his worth is over 300 million, uh, selling pills. <laughs> that's, uh, quite a feat. I guess if you can Pete, if you can convince people that they need your pillow, I guess that's uh that's a good thing. Uh Jacob used a pillow, and that's back in Genesis chapter a rock for a pillow in Genesis chapter twenty-eight. Uh as I read some more about Mike Lindo, uh my pillow company, he uh he does have some uh background that uh, looks rather rocky. But uh, again, we all have rocky backgrounds, if I can use that play on words. <laughs> Uh, turn to Genesis chapter 28, verses 11. This is uh, 
Jacob in his experience uh, fleeing from home uh, because of his uh, treachery, I guess you'd say, or his connivings. And uh, God was working with him in his life. Genesis chapter 28, verse 11. Jacob here, and he lighted upon a certain place and tarried there all night because the sun was set. And he took of the stones of that place and put them for his pillows and lay down in that place to sleep. And then you read on further there in chapter 16 and Jacob, or not chapter 16, verse 16. And Jacob awaked out of his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I knew it not. And he was afraid and said, How dreadful is this place? This is none other but the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. And Jacob rose up early in the morning and took the stone that he had put for his pillow and set it up for a pillar and poured oil upon the top of it. And he called the name of that place Bethel, but the name of that city was called Luss at first. And Jacob vowed a vow, saying, If God will be with me and will keep me in this place and will keep me in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat and raiment to put on so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then shall the Lord be my God. And this stone which I have set for a pillow shall be Pillar shall be God's house, and of all that thou shalt give me, I will surely give the tenth unto thee. And I, I'm not sure about the choice of using a stone for a pillar or not. I, I'd probably just soon do without uh, than using a stone for a pillow. But uh, I, I do see that God was using this uh, event here in Jacob's life as a kind of a a, a uh, a marker um, to communicate to Jacob his will, his purpose. And uh, it's a, a, a level of commitment that Jacob makes here. He says, you know, I realize God's working in my life. I, God is communicating to me. God, and he, he makes a bargain with God. He says, if you bring me uh, to my father's house again in peace, in verse 21, then shall the Lord be my God. And I, I God was faithful to that end. Um, you know, Jacob was heading away from home, and I don't know what thoughts were going through his mind. Would he ever be back? Uh, I believe he had a desire to be back. Uh, and I, I guess I think of the, the stillness of the, the time of the day in the twilight and, and the nighttime as when Jacob's mind was at rest, God came to him and spoke to him. And uh, I think that's when God can speak to us sometimes the best. You know, when all the problems of life are pushed off to the side, and it's just us and God. And uh, no distractions, whether it's early morning or uh, in the twilight time of the day, God, I believe, desires to commune with us. The question I had to ask myself in relation to Jacob's pillow here, using that stone as a pillow, um, do I understand God's plan for my life? Um, do I understand that I can put my trust in God? God has a plan. God has a purpose. Jacob, I believe, had that desire. He wanted to know what God's will was for his life. We, we, we will likely make mistakes, but we need to be willing to own up to those mistakes. Uh, God wants us in his house. He wants us in his, in his kingdom for his purposes. We were singing about that this morning. Part of his resources to be used as a blessing for others. So that's a stone that is rather interesting in the fact that, uh, David used it, or uh, Jacob used it for a pillow. The last stone that I want to look at is one that relates to 
David. And again, this is a very, very familiar stone that's found in 1 Samuel 17, where David was faced with uh, Goliath. First, uh, yes, 1 Samuel 17. Begin reading at verse uh, 40. For Samuel 17, verse 40. And he took his staff in his hand and chose him five smooth stones out of the brook and put them in a shepherd's bag, which he had even in a script. And his sling was in his hand and he drew near to the Philistine. And the Philistine came on and drew nigh unto David. And the man that bare the shield went before him. So you get the picture here. It's this giant Goliath coming before David. The Israelites are in battle, shaking in fear. And here comes this little David and uh, is confident that God will bring Goliath into his hand. And the uh, Philistine has an a sh- armor bearer before him, shield. And when the Philistine looked about and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth and ruddy and of fair countenance. And the Philistine said unto David, Am I a dog that thou comest to me with staves? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. And the Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I will give thy flesh unto the fowls of the air and to the beasts of the field. Then said David to the Philistine, Thou comest to me with sword and with spear and with shield, but I come to thee in the name of the Lord of hosts and the God of the armies of Israel, whom thou hast defied. This day will the Lord deliver thee into mine hand, and I will smite thee and take thine head from thee, and I will give the carcass of the, and I will give the carcass of the hosts of the Philistine this day under the fowls of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. And all this assembly shall know that the Lord saveth not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hands. And he came, and it came to pass, when the Philistine arose and came and drew nigh to meet David, that David hastened and ran toward the end toward the army to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand in his bag and took thence a stone and slang it and smote the Philistine in his forehead that the stone sunk into his forehead and he fell upon his face to the earth. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone and smote the Philistine and slew him. But there was no sword in the hand of David. That's a story that is very, very encouraging. Uh, David's confidence wasn't in the smooth stones that he picked up, but his confidence was in the God that he was serving, the God that he was representing. And uh, so that's a challenge, the stone of faith. David knew what the stone could do with a lion. He knew what it could do with a bear. And in faith, he knew what it would happen to the giant. The battle is the Lord's. How strong is my faith this morning as I, I think of that rock, those stones of faith that David uh, put in his bag, in his shepherd's bag. Um, there's some thought onto the number of stones that he selected that there was five other brother giants of him available to as backup. We don't see that being carried out necessarily, but uh, I don't think that's any lack of faith in David that he selected five stones. He only it only took one, and his faith was strong enough to uh, put that stone where it needed to be. Question I had to ask was who slung that stone? Was it David or was it God? I think it was God through David. Uh, I don't detect any self-confidence that, okay, you know, I'm going to take care of this problem. 
his confidence and his trust was definitely in God. And I think that's, that's the key to the stone of faith. We need to have our, our strength and confidence in God and we can confront any enemy. I have a poem that I've saved over the years. I may have read it here before. I'm not sure. I'm going to read it again because I think it's so very, very vividly portrays. I saved it. It was out of the young companion back. I'm not even sure what year. It's back quite a number of years, but, uh, it, uh, depicts in a poetic way, uh, what took place here. Life was stirring on the campus in the early hours of day, schedule full and work demanding, yet one lad took time to pray. Hearts were full of youthful vigor. Life was at its very best. Cessed for earthly fame and knowledge stirred in every youthful breast. Single file, they marched with purpose through the corridors of fame. Yet their knowledge was so fragile when they tampered with God's name. They exchanged a casual greeting with their teacher as they met, taking chairs behind the table, first to come were first to get. The professor was all ready with his new philosophy. God's existence is our focus, he informed them forcefully. Is there someone in our circle ever heard God in some way? All the students sat there speechless, unprepared. What could they say? Question number two. I dare you to argue, his demeanor seemed to say. Is there someone in our circle ever touched God in some way? Once again, there was no answer, and the air was growing tense. Question number three. He paused a moment. Would the challenge stir defense? Has there someone in our circle ever seen God in some way? Stony silence filled the classroom. Would Goliath get his way? Well, concluded Dr. Decker, there must be no God at all. His bold, brazen words re-echoed back and forth from wall to wall. But the session was not over, for a praying David Hart knew how shameless, unchecked, scoffing many lives could dash apart. Brave the boy who rose with purpose. May I have a chance to speak? The professor was astonished. That poor lad must be a freak. Go ahead, he answered rudely, feeling smug and very secure. His philosophy is proven. Would as concrete stand secure? Is there someone in our circle, asked the lad with somber grace, ever heard of the brain of doctor in the skull behind his face? With no motion to detain him, he moved on to question number two. Sweeping gaze across the classroom, he knew well what he must do. Is there someone in our circle ever touched this brilliant brain? Absolute total silence. Had the student gone insane? Question number three. He squared his shoulders and uttered words with weight of lead. Have you ever seen the brain of doctor neatly fitted in his head? The professor stared in stupor, not a murmur of protest. Hot his ears with floored burning, painful knots formed in his chest. All was silent, deadly silent, as the brave lad stretched up tall. Then, according to his logic, doctor has no brain at all. <laughs>